As the war in Ukraine continues, devastating sanctions imposed on Russia by the United States and its allies, along with huge arms shipments, have added fuel to the fire. A frenzy to boycott and denounce all things Russian has taken hold. We'll also discuss International Women's Day and the struggle to defeat the attack on abortion rights, the anniversary of the Bloody Sunday attack on civil rights demonstrators in Selma, the far-right convoy converging on Washington, D.C., and more. We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. Welcome to today's episode of In the News, our Tuesday show on the Socialist Program with Brian Becker. It's March 8th, 2022. This is an in-depth look at the biggest stories in the news right now, today, and this week. We look beyond the headlines and expose the distortions in the corporate-owned media. Video episodes of The Real Story, our Thursday show, are available on Breakthrough News Wednesdays at 7 p.m. at youtube.com slash Breakthrough News. If you enjoy our show, please support this independent programming by going to patreon.com slash The Socialist Program and subscribing. I'm Walter Smolarik here with Esther Averam and our host, Brian Becker. Nicole Roussel is out today. Esther Averam is also the host of the radio show and podcast On the Ground at onthegroundshow.org. Make sure to check out On the Ground, which comes out weekly on Fridays. Well, Brian, of course, today is International Women's Day, celebrated the world over, founded by socialists. Let's start there. Very good. I mean, at this moment on March 8th, as women around the world and people who support women's rights around the world are marking International Women's Day or International Working Women's Day, a holiday that had its roots in the United States and the labor movement in the United States, just like May Day did, but was then eviscerated and extinguished from consciousness in the United States based on the anti-communist period after World War II. At this moment, women's rights are on the chopping block all over the country. In Texas, the ban on abortions after six weeks, which is still in effect, limitations on abortion rights or women's right to control their own bodies in probably half the states in the country. In Florida, a new highly misogynist patriarchal measure to limit abortion to 15 weeks. Esther, here we are, 2022, the struggle of women is front and center as it always is in the class struggle, because of course, within society, women have been the most oppressed sector of society. And this is since the rise of class society. Anyway, let's just talk a little bit as we get started about International Women's Day. And then we're going to go, of course, to Ukraine. Right. Well, I think it's especially important to celebrate International Women's Day as a socialist because the day was first declared and celebrated by socialist women in the United States in 1909 to highlight the global fight for equal rights for women. 
So the declaration was made by the Socialist Party of America a year after 15,000 women marched through the Lower East Side of Manhattan, demanding a shorter work week, better pay, voting rights, and condemning child labor. And that first celebration was after a century of the industrial phase of capitalism really revving up, pulling more women and children into factories. As early as March 8th in 1857, women working in clothing and textile factories held a street demonstration demanding better working conditions in New York. And later in 1909, on November 23rd, more than 20,000 young women and girls launched an 11-week general strike in New York's shirtwaist industry. And just two years after that first declaration, an estimated one million people in Europe, March 19th, 1911, as International Women's Day with strikes and mass protests. And we know that an observance of International Women's Day by Russian women organizers started a movement there that ultimately provided a spark for the Russian Revolution and overthrow of the Tsar in 1917. But we also know that here in the United States, despite the growing power of that burgeoning movement, capitalists, factory owners were pushing to maintain their exploitation and super profits. And less than one week after those mass demonstrations in Europe, the poor working conditions culminated in the infamous Triangle Shirtwaist Factory fire in New York City that killed 146 women and girls as young as 12 years old on March 25th, 1911. And that horror in New York was not only remembered for a long time every International Women's Day, but spurred founding of the International Ladies Garment Workers Union. Now, most of this history, as told, erases the Black enslaved working women in the United States and throughout this entire hemisphere, not to mention having no control over their bodies, children, or families. And maybe not enough has been done to explore how enslaved labor lowered the threshold of wages and working conditions for working-class white people And how after emancipation, anti-Black racism was used to divide the working class and to pay white men more. And we know about the attempts to exclude Black women from the suffrage movement. So when International Women's Day was revived in the 1970s by radical women, including women of color, they stressed the triple jeopardy of gender, race, and class oppression. And linking it to women in the burgeoning anti-colonial movements in Africa, Asia, and Latin America, and recognizing the many women all around the globe fighting for better conditions, not at a single job or against one employer or boss, but against exploitation by capitalism, which was created by their labor and by the stolen issue of their bodies. And so... On this International Women's Day, I don't really look to symbols paraded before me like, you know, Hillary Clinton or Madeleine Albright, who said that, you know, a half a million dead Iraqi children was worth whatever colonial lesson they were trying to inflict on Iraq back in the 1990s. Or I don't look to women of color like Vice President Kamala Harris or U.N. Ambassador Linda Thomas-Greenfield serving as really intersectional imperialists, holding up the very capitalist order that my sheroes, you know, fought against and fight against today. But I look at, for example, at Harriet Tubman, a fierce anti-slavery fighter, nurse, spy, and scout for the revolution to free enslaved people in this country. And we are also celebrating her 200th birthday this month, Brian and Walter. All right, we're going to turn now to Ukraine Walter, we've spent a lot of time in the last actually six weeks since the crisis began on this show 
talking about the events as they unfolded. And I think it's been very helpful for our listeners. It's been helpful for us. Hopefully, it's been helpful for the larger movement. But here we are. We're in week two of the Russian military operation or Russian invasion of Ukraine. One of the things that's most important is that the so-called fog of war, where it's hard to really know what's true and what's not true, has been deliberately made harder because all of the U.S. mass media echoing the U.S. government and pursuing the same political agenda as the U.S. government and NATO, for instance, has created a propaganda machine about Ukraine that makes it almost impossible to know what's going on. For instance, every building that has been struck by a missile, it's guaranteed to be announced in the U.S. this is another Russian missile. When we know that the Azov Brigade, the Nazis who have been incorporated into the National Guard in Ukraine for the last few years, the forces who carried out the armed fascist-led coup d'etat against a neutral government in Kiev in 2014, those forces are relentlessly shelling the Russian areas in the Donbass, in Donetsk, in Luhansk. And a great number of those buildings have been destroyed. There was a negotiated agreement between the Ukrainian side and the Russian side to have an evacuation corridor for civilians in Maripol, in a city that was at one time controlled by one of the People's Republics, but then was taken over by the Azov Brigade. The Russians say that not one person left as a consequence of the evacuation corridor. And they say it's because the fascists are keeping people in the area and using them essentially as human shields, the way al-Qaeda did in Syria. The Azov Brigade and the Ukrainians say, no, the reason people aren't leaving is because of heavy Russian shelling makes it impossible. Anyway, we know that propaganda and information and the distribution of information is key in all wars. Each side and all sides use propaganda and information. But as a consequence, it makes it very hard to know what's exactly true when you're not there. So rather than focusing on what specifically is going on, I want to stay focused on why this is happening. Why is this war happening? What caused the war? And we've gone over this many, many times, but as we discuss it and as days go by, we're learning new information all the time. And I think the new information is extremely important. One piece of new information has been revealed in a major article in the Washington Post. We discussed it in our editorial meeting. But it shows that starting in early December 2021, as the crisis was heating up, the United States and NATO were shipping hundreds of millions, actually billions of dollars of weapons, including advanced weapons, including, I think, 17,000 Javelin missiles to Ukrainian forces, including to the Azov Brigade, the fascists. And this was happening at the very moment, the very moment that Putin said at his end of the year press conference and then announced publicly that Russia had red lines and the red lines were Ukraine could not be brought into NATO either formally or as a de facto member 
and that Russia would not allow advanced weapons to be placed on its border, this 1,200-mile-long border with Ukraine. This, Putin said, was a red line, right? This is a red line. And he said, we're serious now. And then at the same time, they amassed 150,000 troops inside of Russia and also in Belarus, which is an ally of Russia. They had basically surrounded from the north and the east Ukraine. And so Putin was saying, look, negotiate now. That's plan A. We really mean it. And if you don't, we're going to use this military force. So if you want us not to have a war, all of us not to have a war, give us these security guarantees. And to which the U.S. said, no, no, no. Now, we know that part, but we didn't know that at the same moment they were saying no, under those circumstances, they were shipping a billion or billions of new weapons into Ukraine in December. These come from classified documents. The Washington Post did a story about it two days ago. And obviously, Russia, Walter, knew those weapons were coming in. So Putin came to the conclusion that there was never going to be a negotiated settlement because if you want a negotiated settlement, you actually talk. You don't send a billions of dollars of weapons, including to Nazi forces in Ukraine. They weren't all Nazis, but there are Nazis there and they have significant military forces inside the National Guard. Putin had to come to the conclusion, and I think did come to the conclusion, that the U.S. was never going to negotiate and that if Russia allowed Ukraine to become a staging ground for all of these weapons with this very aggressive posture by the United States and NATO, once those weapons were there, they were never going to be taken out. There would just be more and more and more of them. And those missiles with a flight time of seven, as we've said over and over again, seven minutes or eight minutes to their Russian targets, Russia would never be able to defend against. I mean, when you just know that fact, that when Russia was putting its foot down and calling for negotiations, and formally Biden said yes to the negotiations, right? They engaged in talks at that time, but at the same time, they're sending massive amounts of weapons to Ukraine. Russia must have understood that to be the negotiations were nothing but a fig leaf for the further militarization of Ukraine on their border. Anyway, that's an important piece of information. Yeah, that's extremely important. It's extremely important because I think that that, I mean, I completely agree with you. This war would not have happened if the United States primarily and its NATO allies were willing to give very basic security guarantees to Russia that Ukraine would essentially be a neutral country, as you say, not a staging ground for advanced weapons, and would not join the NATO military alliance, which, I mean, that's no big sacrifice, right? Like Ukraine joining NATO would not make Ukraine any more secure. Obviously, I mean, it provoked this war. Ukraine joining NATO would not make the people of the United States or any other NATO country more secure because, of course, that move would just escalate global tensions and actually bring bring perhaps even a nuclear war all the closer. I mean, that's really what it would have taken to avoid all of this chaos and suffering that we see unfolding right now. So I, I think certainly that was a big piece of the calculation to launch the invasion. And 
I mean, in addition to what's been happening in sort of like the most acute phase of this crisis in the last few weeks, the last few months, I mean, there's the last 25 years, too, that is being taken into account by Putin and the other top decision makers in the Russian government. I mean, it goes back to the beginning of the expansion of NATO, which was sort of in the works even before the Soviet Union was formally collapsed. And then it really began in earnest around 1997. Then you had the NATO bombing and destruction of Yugoslavia, Serbia. You had the NATO invasion of Afghanistan, the war in Georgia provoked by the Georgian government, which is a NATO ally. You had the destruction of Libya, and that was done on the basis of a UN Security Council resolution that Russia feels like it was essentially tricked into not vetoing. And then there was the coup in Ukraine in 2014, in February 2014, where a neutral government, a government that was pursuing a policy of neutrality, was overthrown by force by supporters of the United States and the European Union and basically of NATO. So, I mean, the whole chain of events needs to be understood in its totality to make any sense of the war that's exploding right now. I want to bring to people's attention an article that came out in the Wall Street Journal, December 22nd, 2021. It's an opinion piece written by John R. Denny. Now, John R. Denny is with the Atlantic Council. That's a Washington, D.C.-based think tank. The Atlantic Council, in many ways, sort of serves as something of a brain trust or think tank for NATO. It's partly funded by NATO. It's also funded by many corporations, the Atlantic Council. Denny is also a research professor at U.S. Army War College's Strategic Studies Institute. Now, so again, he wrote this article December 22nd, 2021. This is at the same time Putin is having this press conference announcing red lines and announcing that the Russians are serious, that they're not going to allow Ukraine to be a staging ground. Listen to what Denny says. Now, this is an important figure in the Atlantic Council. And obviously, it was an important enough article that the Wall Street Journal wanted to publish it. Here it is. Regardless, Mr. Putin's tactics have placed the West in a reactive mode, hoping to avoid a war in Europe that could result in tens of thousands of casualties. The death and destruction could far outpace that of the relatively more limited war in Donbass, where as many as 14,000 have died since 2014. Now, remember, when the Russians are saying 14,000 people were killed in those eastern provinces, a lot of media outlets in the West say that's propaganda, but he's just assuming it. Yeah, 14,000 have died since 2014. But then I want to continue. People should really listen to this. But Mr. Putin's price for turning down the heat is an anathema to Western values of national self-determination and sovereignty. Mr. Putin, therefore, appears to have taken quite a risk. And the West ought to exploit his gamble by maintaining a hardline stance in diplomatic discussions. In the best case, Mr. Putin is forced to back down, losing face domestically and internationally, even if his state media spins it as a victory or claims the buildup was merely part of an exercise. And catch this. In the worst case, if Mr. Putin's forces invade, Russia is likely to suffer long-term, serious, and even debilitating strategic costs in three ways. First, 
Another Russian invasion of Ukraine would forge an even stronger anti-Russian consensus across Europe. Although the EU has shown a remarkable degree of solidarity in maintaining its limited sanctions on Russia since the 2014 invasion of Ukraine, that wasn't really an invasion, that was the referendum in Crimea, there are cracks in the edifice, meaning the edifice of NATO. Germany's new left-leaning government hasn't yet found its footing on Russia, Italy, Austria, Hungary, and even France have shown a willingness to consider opening up to the Kremlin despite the Russian forces in Crimea and Donbass. And NATO's attention and resources remain split between Russia on the one hand and instability and insecurity emanating from across the Mediterranean Sea on the other. Russian tanks crossing into Ukraine would focus minds and efforts. Second, a Russian reinvasion of Ukraine would likely result in another round of more debilitating economic sanctions that would further weaken Russia's economy, disconnecting Russia from the tools of global finance and investment, such as the SWIFT banking payment system, would make it difficult for Moscow to earn money from its oil exports. Similarly, a ban on Western institutions trading of existing Russian debt in secondary markets would limit Moscow's ability to finance development. Over time, a stronger, more effective round of sanctions would hasten Russia's economic decline relative to the West. It would reduce its power overall and make it far more expensive for Mr. Putin to intimidate and destabilize his neighbors. Third, and this I'll end with this. Third, another Russian invasion of Ukraine, even if militarily successful in the short run, is likely to spawn a guerrilla war in those areas of Ukraine occupied by Russian forces. This will sap the strength and morale of Russia's military while undercutting Mr. Putin's domestic popularity and reducing Russia's soft power globally. Isn't this something? Esther and Walter. So here's the Atlantic Council. John Denny saying, look, a war, if we stick with our hardline position and push Russia into a corner and they actually invade, that would be great. It would reunite Europe under the U.S. command. It would unite France and Germany under U.S. leadership. They would turn against Russia, debilitating sanctions, the disconnection of Russia from the SWIFT banking system. And then a guerrilla war. Right now, all of those things are happening. Well, absolutely. I mean, if you listen to what Hillary Clinton said, I think on MSNBC last week, she was almost chirping at the idea that Russia could be bogged down in Ukraine just like it was in Afghanistan. And she kind of used the Afghanistan model to basically use that as an example of how an insurgency could be funded how it could be armed, and how it could possibly even defeat Russia. And she quipped that, you know, things didn't work out so well for Russia there. And there were unintended consequences, of course, but she didn't go into that. She didn't talk about the beginnings of al-Qaeda and the blowback, but she was almost giddy at the idea that Russia could be bogged down there. Yeah, when you talk about unintended consequences, Hillary Clinton is a a remarkable politician. Oh, yeah, of course there were unintended consequences. That would be, let's see, the destruction of the World Trade Center. That would be the September 11th attacks. That was the blowback, wasn't it? 
And then there was the war in Afghanistan after that, which lasted another 20 years. Oh, yeah, there were some unintended consequences. I mean, Walter, the fact that American politicians like Hillary Clinton can talk like this and get away with it, it's amazing. But I think this is the game plan. I think the U.S. put so much pressure on Russia and gave them these two unenviable choices. One, you accept the fact that we're going to make Ukraine a staging ground to threaten you in a way that you will never defend against. And if you militarily take action because we won't negotiate with you, then we're going to come down on you like a hammer and the entire imperialist world will unite against you, which is precisely what the U.S. wanted. Yeah, I mean, I I think that this is going in their favor in a lot of ways. I mean, when you just look at their interests in a completely cynical, power-hungry way, which is, of course, the way that they view the world. Yeah, I mean, you know, NATO countries that weren't 100% on board with like the total unmitigated aggression strategy of the United States are now totally on board with that. That includes Germany most significantly. Germany canceled the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. They reversed their longstanding policy of not shipping arms into a combat zone. And they pledged to increase their defense spending, quote unquote, defense spending to 2% of GDP, which has been a longstanding demand of the United States. So yeah, I mean, this and the same is true of Finland. Denmark, for instance, has always had like an opt out clause of the common European defense and foreign policy They're They're talking about getting rid of that now. So yeah, the imperialist camp is absolutely united behind the United States in this ultra aggressive posture. The economic sanctions are are completely devastating and they're taking the form of, uh, you know, not just actions like official actions by the government, but because of the war frenzy that's been stirred up over the war in Ukraine, lots and lots of private companies are at their own initiative withdrawing from the Russian market. So the economic war is really promising to have a crippling effect on the Russian economy, which means a crippling effect on Russian workers who are going to be hit the most by it, especially by inflation as it relates to the cost and availability of essential goods like food, medicine, things like that. So they've succeeded in that front. And yeah, I mean, it's, you know, as you said at the beginning, Brian, it's hard to know exactly where things stand on the battlefield. But, you know, if this is shaping up to be Uh, armed conflict that the Russian military can get bogged down in. And I mean, certainly it does seem like, you know, many tens of thousands of people are sort of rallying to the Ukrainian side, both inside of Ukraine and outside of Ukraine to fight, to engage in an armed conflict with the Russian military. Yeah, that could be something that could last for years and years and years. And as you're saying, that's what the United States would prefer, sort of an Afghanistan style insurgency that weighs down the Russian government, the Russian economy, and the Russian military and makes it less capable of essentially standing up to what the United States wants to accomplish in other parts of the world, particularly in the areas immediately surrounding Russia in the republics of the former Soviet Union and in Eastern Europe. All right. I want to actually play the Hillary Clinton audio. This is on MSNBC. I mean, This is so unconscionable and also so dumb, but also very revealing on the part of the thinking of the U.S. I mean, she says, yeah, let's go do this. Anyway, let's play the tape and then we're going to come back. Here it is. But remember, uh, the Russians invaded Afghanistan uh, back uh, in 1980 
And uh, although no country uh, went in, uh, they certainly had a lot of countries uh, supplying uh, arms and advice and even some advisors uh, to those who were recruited to fight Russia. It didn't end well for the Russians. Uh, there were other uh, unintended consequences, as we know. But the fact is that a very motivated and then uh, funded and armed uh, insurgency uh, basically drove the Russians out of Afghanistan. Walter, Esther, I mean, it's incredible what Hillary Clinton said. She said there's some unintended consequences, but so what? They were a well-funded, motivated insurgency. These are the people who became al-Qaeda. These are the people who the United States said it's top priority from 2000 you know, up until 2018 was the war on terror against al-Qaeda. And when she says some unintended consequences, it wasn't just September 11th. Look what happened to the people in Afghanistan. You know, women and girls had rights during the socialist government in Afghanistan. Peasants had the right to land. There was land to the tiller. Workers had the right to minimum wage. I mean, the Afghan revolution was had so much promise and the U.S. deliberately funded these so-called Mujahideen who became al-Qaeda. They were funding Osama bin Laden. They destroyed not just the Soviets in Afghanistan, because the Soviets actually were winning that war in Afghanistan when Gorbachev pulled the troops out. They wanted to end the conflict for the Soviet side. But it destroyed the people of Afghanistan. It began a war that ended not until really 2021. It plunged Afghanistan into 40 years of war. So to all of the people who are crying crocodile tears right now about Ukrainians, if you listen to U.S. policymakers, they don't give a damn. They don't give a damn. They don't care about Ukrainians any different than they don't care about the people of Afghanistan. Those people in Afghanistan and the people in Ukraine are simply pawns in this geostrategic contest to weaken Russia, not because Russia is menacing the United States, but the U.S. can't treat Russia as an equal major power in the world because countries in Europe would start to gravitate in the direction of Russia and the U.S. hegemonic position, the, the world order that was established after World War II, where the U.S. was the boss of the capitalist world, that would start to shatter. And so the cynicism here, I mean, thank you, Hillary Clinton, for being so honest. So right, honest right. in your imperialist language. Go ahead, Esther. Well, I, I think that a lot of people in the United States and uh, throughout Europe agree with you, and they know that it's true. I, I happened to listen to George Galloway's podcast video show, live video show, which has been, you know, I guess banned on Sputnik now. But uh, he did a poll on YouTube, Twitter, and Telegram at the same time. And the vote was something like, you know, is NATO basically just using the Ukrainian people for their own ends? And the vote was something like either from 75% to 95% of people saying yes. So, you know, they, corporate media may think that they have everyone in their palm, but there's a sizable part of the population who's seen this playbook before. And they know what happened in Iraq. They know what happened in Afghanistan. They know what happened in Libya. And they know what's happening now. But I wanted to say, Another point about what Hillary Clinton is saying, when she's talking about funding and insurgency, you're talking about 
funding and putting weapons in the hands of the most radical edge of fighters against whoever you're trying to defeat. And in Ukraine, that's the far right. That is the Azov Battalion. That is all the neo-Nazis coming from around Europe or wherever they're trying to recruit foreign fighters to go there and fight Russia. And so when we hear about rogue actions and and we speculate about whether Zelensky really has power over all these different factions coming to fight there or that are there right now fighting. That's what we have to look at. And they're basically talking about funding neo-Nazis and the far-right element to fight in Ukraine. Yeah, and I mean, can you imagine what those forces would do after they leave Ukraine? I mean, you know, those people with extreme right-wing fascistic neo-Nazi ideologies that would naturally be attracted to to an insurgency, an anti-Russian insurgency in Ukraine, they would gain combat experience, they would gain connections, they would get weapons, they would be able to use their exploits for recruitment. And then that would blow back on the countries from which they came. And I, I bet a lot of them would come from the United States. I mean, this is a tremendously dangerous prospect for the world to be even considering empowering forces like these and it's something that happens again and again throughout history when people or a country is targeted for regime change or a country is determined to be essentially disposable, dispensable by the managers of the empire. And if they can, you know, the bloodier a battlefield, they can turn it into the better. And I think that's the calculation they've made tragically for Ukraine. One of the things that we are witnessing is a very sharp division among those forces that typically work together in what is loosely called the anti-war or peace movement. And it's not just in the United States, it's all around the world. A lot of people are demonstrating, they're demanding, one, no war, meaning Russia out of Ukraine, and secondly, that NATO expansion should stop, or in some cases, NATO should be dissolved. Other people are marching under the banners that Russia and the United States are just two sort of symmetrical imperialisms that are fighting it out to loot the world. We reject those kind of positions. I I think putting equivalency between the United States and Russia under the circumstances is very misleading and very destructive to political understanding and political awareness and consciousness. Yes, on the surface, You could say, well, look, it's the Russian military that moved into Ukraine. They pulled the trigger. They fired the first shot. But then if you decontextualize what Russia did and why it's doing it, then you don't really understand that it's not two equivalent powers fighting each other. Russia is not trying to put missiles on the U.S.-Mexican border or the U.S.-Canadian border. Russia is not amassing the other major nuclear powers to encircle and contain the United States. And by the way, containment, usually people think of containment as like stopping someone's forward march. There's another way to think of containment, which is you put somebody in a container, like they can't move. And that actually is what the U.S. means by containment. They want to put Russia and eventually China, which is an even bigger foe for the United States, in a container not in order to stop their forward expansion. Neither Russia or China are really trying to like overthrow Western capitalism. They want to put them in a container because the U.S. envisions or has come to the conclusion that the rise of China as a major power or the rise of Russia as a major power 
and their independent powers of the United States means that the U.S. domination over the world order will start to quickly unravel. And so that's why those positions of drawing equivalency are wrong. And thirdly, the Russians didn't create this crisis. When Ukraine was neutral, things were quiet. What changed everything was the Maidan coup d'etat led by fascist forces, literally. They were the muscle that dispatched and destroyed the parliament and the existing Ukrainian government. And the US and the EU held the overthrow of a democratically elected government by fascist forces that they were supporting as a great day for Ukraine. And then the war in the East against Russian people started. And thousands, according to the, you know, the guy from the Atlantic Council, he also uses the figure 14,000 dead, 14,000 Ukrainians dead. We didn't hear any crying about them in the Western media. No crocodile tears for them. And then at the same time, the subsequent governments that came after the coup are insisting that Ukraine will indeed become part of NATO. And whether and even before they're formal members, the U.S. and NATO are pumping in billions of dollars of advanced weapons against Russia. So if you say, oh, well, Russia was the one that was the aggressor and decontextualize it from the circumstance where Russia doesn't want to be put in a container contained in a way that will allow its adversaries to destroy it later on. If you don't do that, then you're really missing the big picture. So, you know, the reason I'm saying this is that when I was talking last week on the Wednesday or Thursday episode, the real story episode of the socialist program with Eugene Perrier, Eugene outlined five kind of core principles that should guide the work of the anti-war movement. And I want to say them again real quick. Number one, NATO provoked the war between Russia and Ukraine. In other words, the U.S. is basically responsible. Two, the solution to the crisis is to dissolve NATO. There won't really be peace as long as NATO exists. Three, defend the United Nations Charter and the sovereignty of nations. Now, Eugene made the point the U.N. Charter is not perfect. The U.N., of course, was a project of the United States. But the United States only adheres to the UN Charter when it's convenient for the United States. When it comes to invading Iraq or Afghanistan or bombing Libya or whatever, the UN Charter goes out the window. Fourth principle, oppose anti-communism and fascism. Like we have to recognize that Ukraine is a breeding ground for right-wing fascistic forces that are gravitating towards it. It's not the only country, but it's there. And the anti-communism is serious because in many ways, even though Russia is not a communist-led country, because of the way the witch hunt unfolded, the Cold War unfolded, it's almost in the DNA of American politics and American politicians to equate Russia with the devil of communism and then to justify any actions. And five, socialism is the answer and the only answer, meaning we're not promoting as an alternative to the unipolarity of American imperial power the idea that there should be just a multipolar world where other major powers use their power to guarantee their interests or their perceived interests, that in fact, multipolarity on a capitalist basis, on a bourgeois basis, won't lead to peace. It will lead, in fact, to World War III. It's an unmanaged rivalry. And so instead of having multipolarity, we want to have socialism and 
you know, Eugene made the point that after World War II, when the Soviet Union and the socialist camp existed, the socialist camp had a vision for how to make the world a better place. And its economy was not based on this sort of vicious competition between corporations and banks competing for markets, the things that actually lead to endless expansion and obviously lead to war. So, you know, I don't think this is the last word about what are points of unity. We still have to think about them. But I think Eugene was on the right path when he outlined these five points, rather than the other arguments being made in the anti-war movement that somehow Russia and the United States are equivalently to blame, and that the anti-war movement ignores the fact, especially the anti-war movement in the United States, ignores the fact that we must, first and foremost, hold the government that speaks in our name accountable for its imperialist actions. And Brian, I I think how important and correct those points are are going to become even clearer with time. I mean, this is going to be difficult at first, right? I mean, there's a war frenzy going on in society. I mean, people are, you know, boycotting Russian vodka, pouring out Russian vodka, stores are refusing to sell Russian products. Russian dressing is like freedom dressing now. I mean, it's really at absurd levels. It's totally promoted and an invention of the corporate media and the politicians working hand in hand with the Pentagon. But it's a very difficult time to defend a principled anti-war position like the one that you laid out. But I think these are the moments where we're really tested and where we can demonstrate our ability as anti-war people, progressive people, socialist people to stand up for principle, even when the whole opinion molding forces of the ruling class are directed against us. And people are going to notice when that becomes clearer, like when, you know, hundreds of billions of additional dollars are shoveled into the war machine, money that could otherwise be used to address the dire crises working class people are facing at home. When, when that keeps happening over and over and over again, it's going to become clearer, right? I mean, when, when the danger of nuclear war, I mean, it sounds hyperbolic, but that's really the stakes of what we're talking about here. When the danger of nuclear war increases, people are going to, I think, look very favorably on those who had the courage of their convictions to stand strong through this moment. So I think this is really where we prove what we're made of. Yeah, those are the principles that we have to use in order to fight back. And we're going to fight back. We're going to build an anti-war movement. Right now, the U.S. is crowing. They're happy. They think Russia's in a corner. But in fact, all of this is going to unravel. In the meantime, Esther, I mean, the hysteria, not just against Putin or the Russian government, but against Russians is so pronounced, it's so gross and disgusting, and it's everywhere. Absolutely. So I have to credit this because I heard it on another show last week, but what we're witnessing really is BDS, the Boycott Divestment Sanctions Movement, that we've been wanting for decades now against Israel, but now it's being put into effect against Russia. And this is the U.S. and all of Europe galvanizing the remaining strength it has and, you know, economic, social, corporate media capital to respond in anger increasingly with a level of hate against Russia, Russian people. And that's because Russia is doing what they pushed Russia to do, and that is to create a security guarantee by military force that Russia could not get after months of negotiating. And It's obvious, as you mentioned earlier in the show, this is to do 
they see that this is an opportunity to do the maximum amount of damage to the world's other major military power. So right now, Russia news organizations, RT and Sputnik, are now banned in EU countries. RT America was demonetized on YouTube, deplatformed, and entirely shut down their operations here in the United States. Apple and Google removed publications, those publications apps from their respective app stores. We know the International Olympic Committee banned Russian and Belarusian athletes from the Beijing Paralympics. Conductor Valerie Gergiev and soprano Anna Netrebko were abruptly canceled from very prestigious sold-out dates in New York City at Carnegie Hall and the Met. Russia is banned from the this year's Eurovision Song Contest. And those of us who are sports fans, we know that Russia top tennis stars have been subjected to harassment and pushed to give on-air camera statements. They're trying to get them to like denounce their own country, like top tennis stars Daniil Medvedev and Karen Kachanov had to remove the Russian flag from their Instagram pages. So these are actions never required of American athletes during the 20 years of invasion of Afghanistan or Iraq, or they're not required of Israeli athletes who live in an apartheid state. I follow the hip hop artist Loki, Palestinian hip hop artist Loki on Instagram. And he posted how in 2019, the Eurovision contest took place on seized Palestinian land there. And that was once a village called Al Sheikh Muanis. He also added that during the 2014 bombing of Gaza that killed 2,300 people, Not only did Google not ban any IDF YouTube channels, it actually allowed a game called Bomb Gaza to be sold on Google Play. And other Gaza-inspired games available were Gaza Assault, Code Red, and Iron Dome. And I also heard Ali Abulima of Electronic Inafada last week talk about how the current hysteria reminds him so much of post-9-11. And I wanted to just give a few more kind of examples of voices that are countering this overwhelming narrative that I think that are starting to make some cracks in this narrative that we're bombarded with, especially here in the U.S. from corporate media. And some of them are the the coverage that we talked about last week in terms of the racist treatment of Africans and Indians and other people of color in Ukraine. You don't see it everywhere, but it's really drawing a lot of people's attention and making them think differently about this war and just kind of this good guy, bad guy narrative that CNN and MSNBC wants to paint and the New York Times. And also there's been critiques of interviews of the far right in Ukraine, including members of the Azov Battalion, other neo-Nazi units, and including one interview where the portrait of Stefan Bandera was in the background. And this is a notorious Nazi from the World War II era who tortured and killed, you know, Jews and other Polish people. There's also been a really important recirculating of Oliver Stone's film, Ukraine on Fire, which I would recommend. It's on YouTube and it gives a really complete history of the 2014 coup, the massacre by the far right of people in Odessa and in other areas of Eastern Ukraine. It's a real primer 
also on these so-called color revolutions fomented by the U.S. and the West in countries around the world, not just in Ukraine, and how they are built and formulated. I think that's really important. And finally, I would say that sometimes in their effort to keep demonizing Russia on corporate media, they wind up you know, dropping a stone on their own foot or a boulder on their own foot. Because, for example, when CNN was interviewing someone from TV Rain, a shutdown media outlet in Russia. This journalist, basically, she was asked, okay, well, what are people in Russia hearing about the war and the lead up to the war? And she said, well, they're hearing all this nonsense about how NATO has come right up to our border and how they are threatening us with weapons. And everyone in my camp, like listening to her, talks back to the TV and says, That's true, though. That's true. They're hearing the truth, and we're certainly not. We have to be really alarmed by this vilification of Russians. I mean, you mentioned the BDS. The BDS actually, you know, targets Israeli institutions, Israeli businesses. It doesn't, like, attack Israeli individual citizens. In that sense, this is actually not like BDS, because this is more like what the U.S. did to the Japanese population at the beginning of World War II, where people were put into camps or categorized, not because of what they did, not because of anything they did. It was because of who they were, because they were Japanese and they were put in internment camps. And when you think of the level, Esther, of the hysteria against Russian people, it's just so off the chart. The International Cat Federation You got that? International Cat Federation banned Russian-bred cats from being registered in any of its pedigree (laughs) books. I'm telling you the truth. A Russian-themed restaurant in Washington, D.C. in the last week was vandalized and broken into, even though its owner actually has no ties to the Russian government. And in fact, he's not Russian. The EA Sports announced this week that it was removing Russian national and club teams from all of its video games. And of course, I don't know if you heard, but the very principled and I would say almost heroic Judo Federation announced that it was removing Vladimir Putin as its honorary president. Anyway, off the charts demonization of Russian people. And that's the thing, Esther, when you think about what's going on The U.S. created the conditions for the war. And as I mentioned, there were a number of the Washington think tanks. It wasn't just the Atlantic Council. And I'm sure big parts of the Biden administration, including that whole foreign policy team, Anthony Blinken, Kurt Campbell, Jake Sullivan, Victoria Nuland. These were the people who brought the Maidan Square. They were like up and coming imperialist, you know, second tier politicians and bureaucrats in 2014 but they helped lead the Maidan uprising. Now they have full power. Now they really control the State Department. They've been pushing the envelope. They've been saying these are non-starters about Russia's demands to have just have Ukraine be a neutral country. And it's Russians who pay the price and it's Ukrainians pay the price. The Ukrainians are pawns. You have this clip from John Mearsheimer right after the Maidan coup where he talks very almost prophetically about how the Ukrainians are being used and what likely is going to happen. Let's talk about that. 
what's going on here is that the West is leading Ukraine down the primrose path. And the end result is that Ukraine is going to get wrecked. And I believe that the policy that I'm advocating, which is neutralizing Ukraine and then building it up economically and getting it out of the competition between Russia on one side and NATO on the other side, is the best thing that could happen to the Ukrainians. What we're doing is encouraging the Ukrainians to play tough with the Russians. We're encouraging the Ukrainians to think that they will ultimately become part of the West because we will ultimately defeat Putin and we will ultimately get our way. Time is on our side. And of course, the Ukrainians are playing along with this and the Ukrainians are almost completely unwilling to compromise with the Russians and instead want to pursue a hardline policy. Well, as I said to you before, if they do that, the end result is that their country is going to be wrecked. And what we're doing is, in effect, encouraging that outcome. I think it would make much more sense for us to, neutral, to, to work to create a neutral Ukraine. It would be in our interest to bury this crisis as quickly as possible. It certainly would be in Russia's interest to do so. And most importantly, it would be in Ukraine's interest to put an end to the crisis. Right. So, yeah, that's been a piece that's been circulating and left media that is still surviving, that is able to kind of push back on this overwhelming corporate media narrative. And, you know, it's good because it's kind of taking people back to facts and history. And in corporate media, the Maidan, the 2014 coup is not discussed in this whole way that history is being erased and they just want to start this conflict like two weeks ago. So that's important. Walter, let's go on to another outcome here. Gas or oil prices are through the roof. And the United States is talking now about boycotting Russian oil. I was just in Western New York. I was driving. You could definitely see the difference at the gas pump. Anyway, let's talk about how this is going to impact the economy in general, but also working class and especially poor people. Yeah, that's right. I mean, when the price of fuel goes up, the price of pretty much everything else goes up as well, right? Because essentially every commodity needs to be transported from one place to another. And the way the globalized capitalist economy is set up, frequently those distances across which they're being transported are are very, very, very long. So yeah, I mean, this is something that's going to, of course, affect people who drive cars and need to fill up their cars with gas, which is a lot of workers, but pretty much everybody who buys things because those things need to be transported. So I think that workers are going to see inflation go up even further than it already is. And that that's something that will be you know, essentially a a mild annoyance for, you know, the upper strata of the middle class and and certainly not felt at all by multimillionaires and billionaires who are actually in charge of crafting the foreign and economic policy of the United States. So certainly this is something that's going to make the economic conditions in the United States even worse, put an additional strain on working class families. And it's so ironic how, you know, these measures are being implemented lightning fast, I mean, immediately, without any thought or debate or public commentary or discourse, right? It's just like a matter of course. And these really profound changes to the structure of the global economy are are being done on sort of a split second basis. None of that speed, none of that haste 
can be found when it comes time to fund the most essential social services that workers rely on, healthcare, education, housing, to save the environment. You know, those things are just too expensive. The economic cost is just too great to do those things. But when it comes to waging economic war, that will further immiserate workers in the U.S., either to a greater or lesser degree. That's something that doesn't even require, doesn't even call for any public debate, apparently. Well, you know, Larry Summers doesn't think it's a big deal. He actually thinks we should be proud, Esther. Larry Summers, of course, is very, very rich. Like the rich people are very, you know, they're, they have so many principles when it comes to economic hardships. It's quite something. We have a clip from Larry Summers saying, uh, it's the price of freedom to tolerate rising gas prices. Again, he's he was a former secretary of the Treasury during the Clinton administration and then he was president of the or chairperson of the Council of Economic Advisors. He was before that, I think, the president at Harvard University. Anyway, let's listen to this clip. I worry slightly, Fareed, when I hear us protest a bit too vigorously that this isn't going to interfere with gasoline prices uh, too much, because I think ultimately if the price of combating tyranny is a period of much higher gas prices. That's a price we need to be prepared to pay as a country. It's so interesting that we're all a country, Esther. We're not like rich people and poor people. We're not like the 1% like Larry Summers and the 99% who actually have to worry about gas prices because you, you know, there's so much food insecurity in the country that you're making decisions about food and gas and you have to use gas to get to your job. But the heroism, the heroism of Larry Summers in the fight against tyranny, quite inspiring. Yeah, when I was listening to him, I mean, aside from just being grossed out by listening to him and watching him, he was introduced as Treasury Secretary under Bill Clinton. And then I'm thinking that, okay, that is when we had these punishing sanctions on Iraq that led to the deaths of at least a half million Iraqi children. And as Treasury Secretary, he would have had something to say about that. He would have been involved in those kinds of policies. And then I thought about how connecting the dots in terms of the ways that the rest of the world is really pushing back, that's probably why 25 countries representing more than half of the world's population, I know it was just 25, but still, you know, when we look at China and India, that's why they either abstained or voted against this resolution condemning Russia. Because when you think about Iraq, you think about Libya, you think about Afghanistan, Yemen, Oh, my goodness. You can even think about countries like Venezuela, where we didn't have boots on the ground that have been so impacted by the United States economic war. And that's what we're talking about right now in terms of gas and oil. We're talking about economic war. They've already borne the brunt of that. And so they know they've seen this playbook before and they see the hypocrisy and the ways that, you know, the U.S. is talking out of both sides of its mouth. Yeah, it's really something. Now that the priority of the U.S. foreign policy establishment is to crush Russia and possibly to boycott Russian gas and oil, the U.S. is actually sending envoys to Venezuela to see if Venezuela, which has been sanctioned ever since the United States government under Trump decided that Juan Guaido, who never ran for president, was the president, 
and Nicolas Maduro, who ran for president and won the election, wasn't president. Ever since that time, and even before the heavy sanctions against Venezuela, but they've been intensified a great deal, Venezuela couldn't sell oil, and that's its most important commodity. But here, the United States now, in order to move to the next target, is actually down in Venezuela, actually talking to the Hmm. Venezuelans and saying, hey, you guys want to sell us some oil? It shows, again, the cynicism of U.S. foreign policy, because for the last number of years, we've been told that the U.S. can't buy oil from Venezuela because the Venezuelan government is so awful, such a you know violator of human rights, et cetera, et cetera, all the usual mantra talking points for the demonized target. But again, it's all a matter of expediency and cynicism and pragmatism, whether Venezuela does it or not. Obviously, Venezuela would like to sell oil because its own people are suffering a great deal huge suffering in Venezuela because the U.S. is, can, quote, contain them. Look at what the U.S. is doing. It's putting Iran in a container, putting Venezuela in a container, putting Cuba in a container, putting Russia in a container. Russia's big enough that it can't be fully contained, but they're going to try. China in a container. Again, China's so big, it really can't be fully put in a container, but the U.S. is trying. This is the American policy targeting governments that are independent, pretending that it's always about human rights or defense of national minorities or chemical weapons or biological weapons or weapons of mass destruction, some pretext. But the goal is always for the United States to destroy any country that dares to be independent from Washington. It really is this demonic empire, but because, and this is what makes it so surreal, unlike the empires of yesteryear, who didn't have to have a public relations operation pretending that they were good guys who cared about human life and human rights and people. Uh, The old empires just were using brute force. End of story. The American empire is dressed up with all of these public rationales and pretexts designed to hoodwink the people of the United States first and foremost. All right, Esther, let's go on to another story At home, there is the nonstop, relentless assault against even basic democratic norms regarding voting rights aimed mainly at Black America. Not only Black America, it's also aimed at other sectors of the working class and poor and Latinos, but primarily against Black America. Anyway, we have the anniversary of Selma, the important Selma march for voting rights. But let's just talk about how gerrymandering specifically is basically designed to not only fortify the Republicans, but to marginalize Black Americans. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned the anniversary of the Selma March because it's an annual, really important event that happens every year to mark the March 5th, 1965 march across the Edmund Pettus Bridge that is known as Bloody Sunday. And So this is just a turning point in the civil rights movement that galvanized people to support uh, civil rights and especially voting rights. But, you know, I have to say before I talk about the story you want to cover is that Kamala Harris, Vice President Kamala Harris, was one of the speakers over the weekend. And she compared the determination of the marchers in 1965 to the determination of the Ukrainian people right now fighting for their freedom. And I just want to say how I'm just so disgusted by that and how it's an example of what I talked about earlier in terms of this intersectional imperialism 
that wants to equate the Black freedom movement and use it conveniently for their own imperialist aims when voting rights for Black people are under attack here in this country. And it's a prime example of this not being a democracy. And, you know, how dare Kamala Harris or anybody else get on their high horse about democracy in Ukraine? But having said that, you pointed out this article recently in the Washington Post about how in Texas, because of the gerrymandering, even conservatives like Representative Dan Crenshaw is only having to face off against people who are even more far right than he is. And because of gerrymandering in places like Texas, I think we've talked about Georgia, we've talked about Alabama and Florida, what's happened is that the Republicans are managing to make very deep red districts. And so these districts will always stay Republican. And because the Democrats did not do what they should have done in terms of before the census vote and before the census count and the redistricting happened, these districts will just stay deep red. And we have a situation now where only more and more far right people can be elected out of these districts and all of the Democratic candidates will have the same situation happen also if they haven't been redistricted out of existence. So we just think this is an important story to mention because this particular representative, Dan Crenshaw, is someone who actually spoke out against the big lie that Trump was cheated out of the election. And he's having to face people further to his right who are challenging him on that. And, you know, they're getting support from people like Marjorie Taylor Greene who come and say, you know, this person is a rhino. He's a Republican in name only. And it's created this cascading effect where we just have people from further and further to the right who are vying to be members of Congress. Speaking of people on the right, Esther, right now, as we speak, the so-called People's Convoy is circling the Beltway. That's the major expressway that goes around Washington, D.C., the Beltway. And they're occupying two lanes of traffic. They're stalling traffic. They're making people's commutes very hard, coming to and from work. It looks like a giant Trump rally, of course, like just be decked with American flags. And, you know, there were some Confederate flags, too. No big deal. I mean, at this stage, anybody bringing Confederate flags to a rally, I think we pretty much know what that is. But this is like one of the USA, USA, USA crowds, but all under the fake, phony banner that they're struggling for freedom against vaccine mandates when almost all of the mandates are over. Again, it's the right wing that sort of raised up very vigorously during the Tea Party movement in 2009 when they said Barack Obama who they insisted wasn't an American and probably a Muslim, was bringing communism to America by providing the Affordable Care Act, which was really just Mitt Romney's sort of moderate Republican privatization plan for universal health care in the state of Massachusetts. They came to, to town hall meetings in 2010 with guns. They were sort of the base for what later became, of course, the Trump campaign. It's even stronger now and during the Stop the Steal these are these right wing organizations and they, you know, they have to mask their true right wing character or at least mask it a little bit. They've come all the way from California, they say, 
to fight against vaccine mandates just like their brethren did in Canada at Ottawa and at the border crossings. Again, it's a protest without purpose, which shows that it's really not only meaningless, but actually camouflaging what they're really doing, which is these are hard right organizers. They have a few independent forces who like are boosting them. But the Washington Post coverage has been very, very sympathetic to them almost, which I don't really fully understand. But anyway, a phony protest, a really phony protest circling the beltway right now. And they're going to keep doing it all week, escalating, as they say, the tactic. And against what? Vaccine mandates? They don't exist here in Washington, D.C. Almost everywhere that there were vaccine mandates or mask mandates around the country, they don't exist right now. Again, just a phony protest. Walter, let's go to our last story. What are the big stories in Liberation News this week? Thanks, Brian. Well, as always, I want to encourage people to go to liberationnews.org and sign up for our newsletter at the top. A few pieces to highlight for this week. One is an article titled, Socialist Planning Could Reverse Sober Findings in New UN Climate Report. This is about yet another alarming report released by the United Nations about the devastating impact that climate change is having and will continue to have and how socialism offers the only solution to this dire crisis facing humanity. There's another piece titled Senate Votes Against Legalizing Abortion 46 to 48. Struggle for full reproductive rights will continue until victory. That's about the vote on the Women's Health Protection Act that failed in a Senate vote, essentially because the Democrats failed to sufficiently fight for it. That's a repost from Breaking the Chains magazine, another publication that I definitely encourage people to check out. And finally, I want to highlight a report from a community struggle going on in Phoenix titled Phoenix Mobile Home Residents Organize Against Dangerous Conditions for Affordable Housing. This is a really inspiring story about how neighbors are standing together for their rights. You can check out all of this and more at liberationnews.org. It's updated every day. All right, we're going to leave it right there. Tomorrow, we're going to be having a special show with comedian, activist, journalist, and author Lee Camp. Lee has been a guest on the socialist program in the past. Lee, like others who worked at RT, was laid off. His show, Redacted Tonight, taken off. But even his other shows and podcasts that are on or have been on Spotify and other streaming services have all been deplatformed now. And it's all because he was associated with RT. Now, RT didn't tell him what jokes to write. He had editorial independence, complete independence. But not only did they shut down RT, there's this censorship of an attack against anybody who was involved with any alternative media, including Russian media. So we're going to talk to Lee on Wednesday. And then Our next show of The Real Story, we're going to be interviewing journalist Ben Norton. We're going to be doing an objective investigation and definition of imperialism, what imperialism is and what it isn't. We wanted to take up the question that is being promoted by some on the left, that Russia is another imperialist center, that there are two imperialisms, one led by the U.S. and NATO and the other imperialism led by Russia or Russia and China. We're going to talk about why that's false. And we really encourage everyone to tune into that segment of The Real Story, which will be broadcast first 
as a YouTube video on Breakthrough News, 7 p.m. Eastern Time, Wednesday night. And then again, regularly, as it always comes out as a podcast on Thursday morning on all streaming services. But that's it for today. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And watch video episodes of our in-depth show, The Real Story, every Wednesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on YouTube with our partner, Breakthrough News. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker. Thank you.